Welcome to God's Messenger Lighthouse Podcast. This is your host, Brother Scott Messenger, bringing you Chapter 2 from Evidence Not Seen, A Woman's Miraculous Faith in the Jungles of World War II by Darlene Dibbler-Rose. Chapter 2. Our front bedroom became the Oval Office, where every facet of setting up a station in New Guinea was the main topic of discussion. The problem of carriers transportation, supplies, and housing. Russell was not yet mobile. One morning, Dr. Jaffrey walked in to announce, Russell, I have the answer. While in prayer, the Lord reminded me that the Babu Oil Company and all the other expeditions to New Guinea used Dyaks. We need Dyaks. Immediately, we all knew he was right. They were without cure when it came to river or jungle work, and where was a better place to get them than from the area where Russell had worked in Borneo? Dr. Jaffrey's letter to the resident missionary brought a speedy reply. In record time, twenty sturdy Christian Dyaks, their muscles rippling when they walked, arrived in Makassar by inter-island steamer. Mr. Post was dispatched to Ambon to make arrangements for housing the Dyaks and three teachers from our Bible school upon their arrival. In the days following, the doctor's okay for Russell to be on his feet. I saw him only at meals and bedtime. A contract was drawn up and notarized for the Dyaks. They and the teachers had to be outfitted Chinese artisans crafted lightweight trail tins with waterproof lids, tailored khaki shirts and trousers to fit Russell's thinner frame, and crafted his boots with cat's claws fitted to the soles, and he purchased and packed food for twenty-five with the help of the Dyaks, who were staying in the Bible school dormitory. By March 5, all was in readiness. Padjak from the same area as the carriers, was invaluable as their translator. He, Sarga, a well-educated schoolteacher from northern Sumatra and Patapalojai, a schoolteacher from Ambon, were teamed to help in the ministry. They were very different in every way, yet they complimented one another and made a terrific team. The farewell service held at the tabernacle was an hour long. Remembered, uh, the Dyaks stood on the platform, attired in breech clouts and pill box hats of finely woven fiber, and sang songs of praise to God in their own several part harmony and language. A thrill went through the audience. I thought I'd never heard such beautiful music. The Dyaks' faces manifested gratitude when the whole congregation solemnly raised their hands in a pledge to pray for them as they went to New Guinea. Saying goodbye was much easier this time, knowing that Russell would have trustworthy, capable carriers and companions. At Ambon, they transshipped and were joined by Mr. Post, then continued on to Oeta. The Dyaks adapt, 
lead, handled the coastal canoes through the first rapids, cutting the travel time to the base camp in half. There they sorted and packed supplies, then fashioned slings in which to carry the trail tins. The machete, or long knife, was as much a part of the Dyak's attire as his loincloth. They were hand-forged and very sharp. Whenever the Dyaks walked, swinging their machetes, the jungle receded from around the bivouacs and along the trail. The supplies were transported over the trail by relay. This meant that Russell and the carriers traversed the trail twice to get everything in from the base camp. The Dyak carriers sought out easier and more direct routes, feeling Tr uh, felling trees for bridges or fashioning ladders for scaling the mountain walls, thus s saving days on the trail. The Dyaks also hewed and burned out three splendid canoes shaped for speed and safety on Lake Penenai and the reticulated rivers of Kapaku country. Once at in Rotali, housing was the prime concern. Four Dyaks were kept busy preparing materials for building an initial structure sufficiently large to serve as or storehouse and living quarters for the Dyaks and mission personnel. Trees were felled for the framework. Tree bark was flattened and stacked for roof covering. Bamboo mats were woven for walls, and rattan was collected for tying the building together. Everything was locally available, with the exception of a few nails and the sheets of ising glass. The, toll, to, or the total cost of materials was approximately $20 U.S. 1939. The Dyaks, accustomed to rice and fish in plentiful supply in Borneo, found the sweet potato a poor substitute. Some became sick. It became apparent that someone must make a trip back to Ambon for further supplies. Russell was elected. He walked in driving rain for five days, from 6 a.m. until 5 p.m. The trail was dreadful, but the day he left the base camp in a canoe in a tropical downpour was even worse. Arriving in Oeta, he was informed that the steamer was not scheduled to stop that month. But, he said, I prayed, and two days later, I was aboard ship en route to Ambon. Since Russell would be in Ambon about a month before the next steamer to Oeta, I was granted permission to join him. In the three months since I had seen him, last he had gained weight and now weighed about 140 pounds. I stuck with him every glorious moment, and I'm sure there wasn't a full 24-hour day all month or it wouldn't have ended so quickly, but end it did, and I found myself once more watching a steamer carry him away. For how long this time, only the Lord knew. I came down with dengue, or breakbone fever, but knowing that the rash would not appear until the fifth day, I caught the next steamer for Makassar. 
when the cabin boy opened my door, he saw what appeared to be a bad case of smallpox. With a gasp, he slammed the door shut and disappeared. Some hours later, the first officer came to see me. Recognizing the symptoms of dengue fever, he said I should remain in the cabin until the rash disappeared. He sent my, me my meals to me, and I was quite recovered before docking in Makassar. Dr. Jaffrey had been very ill during my absence. He had been in a coma for several hours. The local doctor diagnosed a peculiar type of malaria. This seemed to be the cover all for any illness the doctors weren't sure of. Dr. Jaffrey was much better, but he was remaining at Bintang Tinji until stronger. Margaret Jaffrey and I joined the other missionaries in Bintang Tinji for the remainder of the school holidays. Very late on the night of, of September 3rd, 1939, we were startled awake by insistent knocking on the door. It was a Dutch patrol officer and his aide with the news that an hour earlier, England and France had declared war on Germany. Holland mobilized her troops in the motherland. However, she hoped to remain neutral as in World War I. If she were drawn into the European conflict, what of the Indies? Would the surrounding British and French colonies and possessions bring the war to the Far East? Precautions were being taken, and the marine planes serving the expedition in New Guinea were withdrawn to Java. Government officials in Enerotali were ordered to be prepared to abandon the post and proceed to the coast at a moment's notice. The American Council ordered all Americans to have their passports up to date. From that time on, the conflict in Europe was never far from our thoughts and constantly in our prayers. In late September, I had returned, as had the other missionaries, to our ministries in Makassar when a cable came from the Missions Council in Java assuring Dr. Jaffrey that permission to use the mission's plane in New Guinea would be granted immediately. Dr. Jaffrey broke the wonderful news to me as soon as he heard. Do you need some help packing, Lassie? Thank you, Dr. Jaffrey, but this being the eighth time I've packed and unpacked in the last few months, I'm quite adept to it or at it. I packed with a, a critique and care. Cardboard boxes would be used for transport by air. In the sultry weather, I had to check the boxes daily for mildew and vermin. Cardboard was no protection against the ever-present rats and cockroaches. The promised permit to use our plane in New Guinea never came, so a few weeks later I returned the few things I had chosen to take with me to New Guinea to the five metal trunks of wedding gifts. Handling the beautiful gifts was always a time for remembering our dear families and the multitude of wonderful friends God had given Russell and me. As long as the plane permit was held up and the trail was the only means of reaching the interior, our wedding gifts would remain in the trunks with a liberal supply of roach and rat killer. In October, while Mr. Post was 
in Ambon, Russell and three diet carrier, carriers explored the newly discovered Kamandora Valley to the east of the Wiesel Lakes, which had an estimated population of 20,000. After three days, the police patrol that Russell accompanied aborted its plans, but rather than suffer defeat, Russell continued with his three carriers, and for several days they traveled through mud up to their knees, often falling waist-deep into it. Many days, a stream bed served as their trail. The Monai people welcomed Russell and the Dayaks and brought fruit and vegetables to them. The day before, they headed back toward the Wiesel Lakes. Russell traveled to the eastern limits of Monai land with Monai boys as guides, allowing the Dayaks to rest. Standing atop a very high mountain, he gazed into a labyrinth of valleys, mountains, and passes and wondered how many other tribes were locked in beyond where his eyes could see. He felt a bit like Abraham overlooking Canaan, who heard God say, Lift up now thine eyes, and look from the place where thou art northward, and southward, and eastward, and westward, for all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it. Genesis thirteen fourteen through 15 Russell heard the Lord speak to him on that high place. Other sheep I have, them also I must bring. Yes, there were many more undiscovered tribes and much land to be possessed. While Russell continued to explore the uncharted areas far from the news of the outside world, a German freighter flying a swastika lay at anchor in Makassar Harbor all of October and part of November, were the Germans awaiting orders or just enjoying the pleasures and protections of a neutral port? We silently wondered. Again, Russell celebrated Christmas on the trail, while I was hundreds of miles away at Binteng Tinjai with the Makassar missionaries. Russell and I had been apart for sev seven more long months. The Jaffreys, Grace Dittmar, a newly arrived missionary, and I went caroling at four in the morning and awakened everyone on the hillside with our loud rendition of joy to the world. Even as we sang, the wonder of God's great love seeped into all the crevices and voids of my inmost being, giving me strength to face the dark, looming clouds of war and further separation from Russell. A Christmas letter arrived just days after the holidays. Russell had accompanied the Dayaks to the coast to see them safely aboard the government steamer returning to Borneo. Their six months were over, and as they left, Russell wrote, I shall miss them. We thank God for the Dayaks. We have worked with them side by side for so many months that I shall be lonely without them. The letter recounted his visit with the chieftain at Inneratali in the Natori squatted in his hut and listened attentively as Russell tried to explain the love of God and how Jesus had died for them. The chieftain was spiritually hungry, he admitted, but if Jesus had died for Russell, then he hadn't died for them. 
they were people and Russell was a spirit, one who had come from the spirit world beyond the mountains. I am not a spirit, Russell protested in the Natori to prove his theory, took his Stone Age calendar off of the wall and began to count the rattan knots, 18 in all. The first knot had been tied with the patrol officer and the police arrived. Each knot thereafter represented the passing of each moon. You arrived, and later others followed. You are all men, and the Natori insisted. None of you has a wife or children. If you are not spirits, who gave birth to you? Russell countered, but I told you before that I have a wife. Where is she? Makassar, which to in the Torai probably sounded like a good name for a spirit place. Why has she not come here with you? With a limited vocabulary, Russell found it difficult to explain permits and government regulations, so he lamely added, Our chieftain says no. If your chieftain is so bad in his stomach that he won't let your wives come, get rid of him. And the Torai reasoned, Many men have died on the trail, Russell protested, to which in the Torai responded, Then your wife would have made it. Wherever we go, the women follow and carry the loads. In the Torai eventually concluded that if Russell were speaking the truth, and there was a wife so weak that she couldn't carry his supplies, then he would send Kupaku men down trail to help her. Meanwhile, others of the local tribe decided to learn firsthand if the government personnel were truly spirit people. They reasoned that if their arrows killed these intruders from beyond the mountains, they must be human. However, if the arrows passed through their bodies and they did not die, then they were spirits. A small government party that had gone across the lake was ambushed by several hundred natives. Some Kapokus were killed when the police opened fire in self-defense. Lord, I prayed, if those people are ever to believe and understand about you, women will have to go there. The moment I spoke those words, an assurance filled me. God spoke clearly in the silence. I threw the letter into the air and yelled, I'm going to New Guinea. Scooping up the pages, I dashed out to find Dr. Jaffrey. Dr. Jaffrey, read this. I'm going to New Guinea. Lassie, I've known that for several days. I also had a letter from Russell giving his consent for you to go by trail. I've been waiting for the Lord to show you. Dr. Jaffrey and Margaret took me to the ship on January 23, 1940. Our belongings, packed as if by a seasoned professional, were stored below deck in the cargo hold. Dr. Jaffrey commended me into God's care. Then he said, Remember, Lassie, for centuries the enemy has held these people in darkness. You will now experience satanic opposition such as you have never known. Until Russell's first trip, no one had ever invaded his territory to challenge him. But don't be afraid, for he is a defeated foe, undone by Calvary. 
Never forget that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Pondering these words, I stood at the rail and waved until the ship moved out beyond the breakwater and the Jaffreys were out of sight. They had become like a father and sister to me. I joined Viola Post in Ambon, where she had remained since her October visit with her husband. At the crack of dawn on February 5th, we were up and moving about. Supplies, carefully packed in tins, were crated for repacking in Oeta. We were put on board. Then we embarked on the small government steamer. Almost every day we stopped at a different island to discharge cargo for remote government posts. Visiting these islands, tiny dots anchored by their coral moorings to the ocean floor was like being transported into yesteryears of history. There was the ancient fort of Banda, built by the Dutch when they, they expelled the Portuguese in the early 1600s. Its ancient cannon, like a cyclopean eye in the crinolated structure, watched the harbor. The old, old churches evidenced the labors of early Dutch missionaries. A white linen cloth and silver communion service, over 100 years old, were lovingly cared for and still being used. The clove, nutmeg, Mace and coconut plantations were a delightful experience for my olfactory nerves. The marine gardens beneath the sea of this area were virtually unrivaled. I was most intrigued by the pearl fisheries. The Japanese divers were able to descend descend to amazing depths without the use of diving equipment. They were soon to be recalled to their homeland with in-depth information about the Banda and Suram seas and the surrounding islands. We were traveling at the worst time of the year in terms of the weather. The government boat was small. While rolling from side to side, it pitched into, onto, and off the towering waves. Thank God I wasn't prone to seasickness. As we turned south and east along the neck of the island, the weather steadily deteriorated. We knew that unless there was a change for the better, we would not be disembarking at Oeta the following day. Because of a large sandbar guarding the mouth of the Oeta River, the government steamer had to drop anchor at considerable distance from shore. Lowering the cargo and passengers into lifeboats during a storm of this proportion was a risk the captain did not care to take. The alternative was to continue on to the next scheduled stop, Maruk, a government post near the border between Netherlands, New Guinea, and Papua. We were assured that there were no objections to our remaining on board during the return trip. It would surely be calm, and they would be able to land us. The captain and officers were more than gracious, but there were so many factors involved that Viola and I were emboldened to ask the Lord's intervention. Our husbands would already have 
arrived on the coast. Because there was no radio in Oeta, it was impossible to inform them of any change in schedule. Two of the evangelists and a contingent of Kapokuas would be midway down trail to wait at Orawaja. There was no way to turn them back. Housing and feeding so many on the coast would be expensive and a near impossibility. The danger of the Kapokus contracting malaria also had to be considered. Never before had they ventured to the coast. The urging to find out if we were spirit people or humans like them had moved them to volunteer for the treacherous trip. God was our only source of help. We prayed earnestly that he would still, still the wind and calm the troubled sea. By morning, the sky had begun to clear, the wind to abate, and when we came abreast at Oweta, the ship dropped anchor in the glaciest sea I had ever seen in all my trips around the world. Today's seas are still subject to the Christ of Galilee. In about an hour and a half, we and our cargo were lowered into a lifeboat and transported around the sandbar. Excitement mounted as I glimpsed Russell standing on the jetty. Once more, we were to be together, this time in New Guinea. Three days later, in dugout canoes with coastal oarsmen, the posts, Russell and I, started out for the base camp. When we arrived at the base camp, <clears throat> the supplies were quickly unloaded and stored in the large shed, and the carriers left immediately to return to Oeta. We were sorting supplies when we heard loud yelling, Hoo-hoo! echoing through the jungle. The Kapakus, Russell yelled, Pajak! and Petapologi arrived at, with the Kapakus sent along by Indatore. They ran into the clearing in a circular formation, hoo-hooing in a dissonant two-part harmony. Stooping after a, stopping after a few minutes, they called, Where is your woman? Women! Russell pointed to where I had run up on a pile of fallen tree trunks to see them better. They surrounded me like a flock of chattering magpies, examining the whiteness of my skin, shoving up my sleeve to see if the color was the same all the way up. Some gave my arms the pinch test, nodding to one another as though to say, Yes, see, it has the feel of real flesh. It was a moment pregnant with deep emotion. These dark-skinned, pygmoid people were New Guinea's people, my people. The small kerosene lanterns had been lighted, so I sat down watching the Kapakus divide their sweet potatoes into equal piles and place them in their tins to the approximity uh, 40 pounds in the tins. Russell and Walter added from our supplies enough to make up a 60-pound starting load. I was intrigued, watching them tie their tins with rattan pulled from the nearby trees. The handles they fashioned were tried, then shortened or lengthened until the tins hung from their heads in the most comfortable position for carrying. 
I asked Russell if 60 pounds was not too much. No, he explained. It's a diminishing load as they eat their potatoes. Traveling with them in the Wiesel Lakes area, I learned that they are an amazing strong people. And don't forget, they're accustomed to the mountains, the altitude, and the cold. With a wonderful answer to our carrier problem, with the dikes gone and the coastals physically unfit for the rigors of the trail and the cold, we would never have been allowed to make this trip without the help of the Capacus who had volunteered to help us, weak women. Russell, what are they saying? They keep looking in our direction. Oh, they're probably wondering if they'll have to carry that weak, skinny woman before the trip's over. And, Russell, I bleated. You know how strong I am. Then I saw his grin. What are they really saying? They're wondering why you aren't wearing glasses like the rest of us, and they've never seen blue eyes before. They're as curious about you as you are about them. As soon as their trail tins were ready for the trail, the Capacus curled up on the floor to sleep. I crawled in under the mosquito net that Russell had hung for me. I thought that I was much too excited to sleep, but I did. The first day on the trail, the torrential downpour came. We climbed in the driving rain, determined to reach one of the Biberics, but didn't make it. So we stretched a tarpaulin viola, and I had waterproofed, but it proved no protection against the deluge. It was a miserable night for all of us, and before dawn we were thankful to be on our way. All that long day, thoroughly drenched, not daring to stop lest we become chilled, we kept moving until we reached one of the biberics where we camped for the night. Because it was still raining when we reached the campsite, there was no dry grass to cut. I snuggled down into the luxury of the much-used dry grass on the earth floor, thinking how wonderful it was to be so comfortable. About midnight, the rain stopped. We found the single log bridges that spanned the gorges to be great time-savers. Each had a piece of rattan for a handrail. Anything that lies dormant in the jungle for even a short time becomes moss-covered and slippery, so I was grateful for the cat's claws on my boots. I reminded the Lord frequently of his promise, none of his steps shall slide. To fall from these logs would have meant broken bones, possibly death. If the ladders improvised by the Dyaks during their time in New Guinea had rotted, New ones were speedily fashioned, as raw materials were in ample supply. We threw them up against the perpendicular walls of the mountains, saving hours and energy. We changed to dry clothes for sleeping, but the following morning we dressed in our washed but damp gilded trail clothes of the previous day. This, to me, was the most unpleasant part of the trail. If the Capacus thought... I was lagging behind, they would turn to each other in mock seriousness and say with a toss of the head in my direction, look at her, the old thing, no legs on her at all. My youthful pride could
couldn't ignore their teasing. Of course, I could walk faster, which was exactly what they wanted. All the morning of the final day, the carriers, Pajak and Patapalajai, kept urging me on. Today, we will be in Idopia, the first village in Kapaku land. <clears throat> Approaching the top of the mountain ridge, I could hear the carriers who had gone on ahead yelling, The women, women are here! The women are here! They are not spirit people! Cresting the summit, I looked down into the valley and saw men, women, and children running out of their gardens or hurrying out of their huts. All were heading toward the mountainside. Half of them yodeled, Hoo! And the, uh, the answering, Hoo! echoed back at Atave lower from the rest of the crowd. Their excitement was infectious. Those long months of sitting on the coast of Makassar, the separation from Russell, the packing and unpacking, the exhausting trek over the rugged terrain, all these were behind me now. I raised my hands, waving to the people, my cheeks streaked with tears. I started running down the mountainside, singing at the top of my lungs, I'm home! I'm home! The first Kapaku women met me halfway up the mountainside, each bearing a gift, a roasted sweet potato. I couldn't hold them all, so I sat down on the grassy slope as they continued to pour their presents on my lap. Then the chieftain of Dupa, Kapala, Dupa came up to me, demanding, Are you a woman or not? Yes, I am, I replied, as he leaned close to scrutinize me carefully, comparing my hat, my clothes, and my boots to Russell's, who had just come over the top of the mountain. Kapala, Dupa, turned down his lower lip and, with evident mistrust, spit out, No, you are not! Yes, I am a woman, I declared, and took off my hat and removed the pins, letting my hair tumble over my shoulders. Kapala, Adupa, dropped his bow and arrows, bit his index finger, clicked his gourd, and exclaimed, Yes, you are a woman. Truly no man ever had hair like that. He took hold of a lock, giving it a yank to make sure it was attached to my scalp. The chieftain felt through the pile of sweet potatoes, searching for one that was still warm from the coals of the fire. Finding one, he took the sweet potato in his hands, which had never been washed, not on purpose anyway, rolled it, blew on it to remove the dust and ashes, then peeled it with the paring knife that had grown on the end of his thumb, rolling it between his hands again, Giving it a second blow test, he handed it to me, saying, Woman, eat the potato. I took the sweet potato from him, and though I had been studying wordless from Russell, and thus knew greetings and understood what Kapala Edupa had just said, I didn't know sufficient to say what was burning inside of me. I said aloud in English, Someday... By the grace of Almighty God, I will sit down and eat with you anew in my father's kingdom. I love sweet potatoes. I ate it with relish. 
I sat encircled by the children and the women until Russell joined me. He was no stranger to them, so after a brief visit we went on with the carriers, with whom I shared my sweet potatoes, reaching the canoes left on the river's bank. We waited for Viola and Walter, who soon joined us. An official welcome awaited us at Inarutali. Dr. J. Victor de Bruin, the Dutch patrol officer, invited us to his quarters for a cup of tea and fried sweet potatoes. It was apparent that he was held in high esteem by the local people. Then Russell took me home, our very first home. It was beautiful to me. There were two rooms, a living room and study bedroom with woven bamboo mat walls and floor. The bed was made of pitson planks, as was the counter across one side of the bedroom. What a wonderful idea, using icing glass for windows to keep out the cold and let in the view. Russell had chosen a lovely spot for the house. On the hillside, looking across Lake Penenai, to the tree-clawed mountains behind which the sun was just setting, the magnificent of the sunset mirrored on the lake was breathtaking. The whole lovely home was marvelously air-conditioned. The air came through most anywhere. Upkeep was simple. If the roof leaked, we went to the jungle, got another piece of tree bark, and slipped it on or in. Often, other things could slip in too, like the three-foot-long forest dragon that was hanging on the wall above my head when I wakened one morning. <clears throat> the kitchen was a lean-to with an open wood fire. I made my own oven from a five-gallon kerosene tin cut in half lengthwise. With a piece cut from another tin, I devised a rack on which to set my bread pans. When I set my oven on a fire pot made of local clay, I had a functional, custom-made, top-of-the-line, open-fire oven. Starting for the kitchen, I almost stepped on the newest member of our family, a little Kapuku boy. He was juggling live coals and grinned at me, saying he was going to start my fire. After a kettle of water was set over the flames, M. Mopai informed me that his mother was dead and he was my boy. I was willing. I couldn't resist his grin. Scarcely were our trail tins stacked in the go-down before our official welcome to Inarotali from the local people was celebrated. Part of our responsibilities as pioneer missionaries was making contact with other villagers living along the rivers that flowed into the Wiesel Lakes. We traveled the waterways in our diet canoe, moving from one village to another, some of which Russell had visited before, until we reached the outermost Kapaku villages east of the lakes. One evening, Russell connected our 12-volt battery-powered radio, then switched it on to catch the BBC London news. We leaned over the radio, not wanting to believe the shocking news that the Nazis were invading Holland, Russell ran down to the government post. They too had heard the news only hours earlier. Our thoughts and prayers turned to our dear friends in Holland 
and to that tiny country pitted against a monstrous, monstrous war machine, Nazi Germany. It was the 10th of May, 1940, my 23rd birthday. In just five days, Holland fell. It had been infiltrated, betrayed by the enemy within. This meant dire days for those in Holland, uh, austerity aboard, uh, abroad, a tightening of the belt, a determination to endure until the motherland was free of the tyrant. In some areas, it spelled retrenchment. The royal family had safely reached London, and Queen Wilhelma spoke courage into the hearts of her loyal subjects in the colonies with German U-boats and submarines operating in the Indian Ocean, the Java Sea, and the Makassar Straits. The long arm of the conflict in Europe was beginning to be felt in our peaceful islands. Many times during each day I would find myself saying, Thank you, Lord. It's so wonderful to be here. We were striving for a mastery of the language so that we could learn so we could leave believers behind to encourage and comfort one another. The people, with the help and supervision of the teachers, constructed a building that weekdays served as schoolhouse and Sundays as a church building. Both Petapolohajai and Surga were good teachers, instructing their pupils in speaking, reading, and writing Indonesian, plus basic arithmetic. Sunday services were well attended, both by people and by flies. Each churchgoer arrived with his or her private swarm. One Sunday, the flies were more pestiferous than usual. Digamo, the village bad guy, was sitting well up front, swatting flies to the right, to the left, to the rear. Finally, in desperation, he jumped up and pointing a grubby finger at the preacher. Mr. Post demanded, Do you have flies in heaven? The preacher had never had that theological conundrum thrown at him before. He couldn't think of an appropriate chapter and verse. Receiving only shocked silence as his reply, Digamo said in disgust, Well, if you do, I don't want to go there, and stomped out. Daily, in the afternoon, with our picture roll, we visited from house to house, sharing and witnessing. I recall vividly one wizened little boy, a little old lady, who prayed with me regularly for others after she came to know the Lord. Her skin was wrinkled and gray with the ashes and dirt of her many years. Her hair had been rubbed off while or where the handle of her nets had rested during the long days of her life from young womanhood to old age. Her teeth were still firm, as were those of most Kapakas. Her eyesight was dimming, but to me she was beautiful. Always I was welcomed with an ear-to-ear toothy smile, a sweet potato, and often cryfish, which she had roasted on the coals of the fire. After a time of prayer, we shared the repast. She peeled and blew my sweet potato. This I ate while she made ready the crayfish. Knowing that I didn't particularly care for the bitter flavor of the yellow liverish substance left on the tail 
After the head was broken off, she sucked it off before handing the tail to me to shuck and eat. With her long thumbnail, she was well equipped to dig the goodies out of the shells, so she always kept the heads from my appointed uh, apportioned number of crayfish as well as her own. If I had gone alone to the village, either my elderly friend or Inden the Torai's youngest wife and sister-in-law escorted me home. Outposts that were remote or yielded little to advance the war effort were being closed. All too soon the word came, in the Rotoli must be abandoned. We begged permission to stay, but without police protection it could not be allowed. All police were to be posted to Ambon, and the services of the government steamer would be discontinued. The government would be held responsible for our safety, especially because women were involved. This I could appreciate, but it was so grievous to be wretched from our home and our people. How I needed the Lord's words for courage and comfort. I knew, I know the thoughts that I think toward you, thoughts of peace and not of evil. Jeremiah 29.11 We started packing, but every free moment was spent with the people. We tried to explain that our chieftain had said we had to leave, and the Tori just knew we should have gotten rid of that chieftain with the bad stomach. On the morning that the governor radioed Dr. De Bruin that on a certain date that Albatross, the government steamer, would call at Oweta to pick up all personnel from Inertali, we knew that immediate evacuation was imperative. Dr. De Bruin, no less grieved than we, drew up the plan. He and a party of police would go first to attend to the procuring of canoes from Oweta. The mission party would be followed by the remaining police and coastal prisoners in two contingents. The police commandant w with the last group would carry out the government radio and generator. When we said goodbye to Dr. De Bruin, he teasingly said to me, If you make it to the base camp in five days, I'll kill all the goats and we'll have a suit come bing goat sh shish kebabs. Taking the challenge, I laughed and said, You're on. Coming up from the Go down with our trail clothes and boots. I saw him imply my faithful bearer of hot coals sitting on our porch with several young friends. Someone had given him Impai an old straw hat. He was never without it. He and I were both terribly distressed at our imminent departure. He was my boy, and I had become his mother. I wanted so much to know before we left that he understood why we had come to live among his people. As meticulously as I could, I explained about God's love. Oh, Mopai, do you understand? He had been staring at his hands. Suddenly he looked up, understanding, showing in his big brown eyes. Yes, Mama, I have listened. Jetotai, Jesus died for me. We bowed our heads while Imapai prayed and God heard. 
When we left the next day, Emapai accompanied us over the first mountain range. Finally, I sadly said, Emapai, you must turn around and go back now. I held his hand in a tight clasp. I could say no more. Tears were too near the surface. He stopped, and I walked on down into the valley. When I turned, there he was, standing on the mountainside. I saw the old straw hat and a little boy, so alone, silhouetted against the afternoon sky. I could tell he was crying. Feeling that he was too old to cry, he wiped his face with an angry gesture, then brushed the tears off on his hip. Finally, he called, Mama, in a... I could, could I return quickly. The wind reaching up from the valley carried my answer. Mopai could die too. Remain in peace. As soon as we can, we will return. At the bend of the trail, I looked back. Mopai was gone. Sitting down, I wept for my boy, my son in the faith. Dear God, please take care of him until I come back. Or until I can come back, I little realized that it would be nine years and a war away before I'd see him again. My trail boots, being constantly wet, came apart at the seams, so the last two days I had them tied to my feet with rattan. Nevertheless, I made it to Orwaja in four days. True to his word, Dr. De Bruin killed the goats, and we all enjoyed goat shish kebabs. Waiting in Oweta for the rest of the government party to arrive, we went on a spending spree, buying a lukewarm orange crush. On the appointed day, the albatross arrived, transporting us to Ambon. German U-boats and submarines had been reported in East Indi Indies waters. A strict blackout was observed as we shipped from Ambon to Makassar, frequent lifeboat drills were constant reminders that the conflict in Europe had now engulfed our peaceful islands. Next time, Chapter 3.